Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. We want to look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse this evening, not a prequel of them. They are here. They're on the timeline. They are next in Revelation chapter number six. And we want to look at how they relate to the early days of this tribulation period. One commentary put it this way, as an example of the Bible's influence on culture at large, the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been referenced many times in literature, paintings, movies, and other media often as portents of imminent cataclysm or as the means by which a disaster comes to pass. I mean, let's put it this way. We've heard of the four horsemen in all kinds of different places. I mean, they were wrestlers. They were uh, uh, parts of, of movies and television shows and all these things. But it's important for us, and this is what this commentary is trying to say, that not that we take our cues from the culture or from Hollywood, or the media when it comes to the end times or really anything about the word of God. We don't want to look to those entities about what the Bible says. We don't even want our minds to be influenced by what those entities say about the end times or what the Bible says. If we have questions about the end times, here's where we go, the word of God. If we have questions about the word of God, here's where we go, the word of God. And in prayer, ask the Lord to illuminate us through his spirit to understand what the correct interpretation of the word of God is so that we do not make a private interpretation, meaning we don't twist the word of God to make it say what we want to say. And so as we look at these four horsemen tonight, we want to look at it through this lens, what does the Bible say? Not what your favorite movie says or not what a television show says or not what a famous series of books says about the four horsemen. No, no. What does the word of God say to you and to me about these four horsemen? So we're going to read Revelation chapter number six. We're going to begin in verse number one here in just a second. Brother Anthony, would you be able to, uh, when I'm done reading the scripture, just get me a bottle of water, please. Thank you very much. All right. And it says, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he'd opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld a little black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power. Oh, thank you, Melissa. And power um, was given him unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And I would say what we just saw in those eight verses is pretty serious. 
What we saw in those eight verses is very severe. Now remember, these things will not happen until the saints have been raptured out and the tribulation period begins. But these four entities, these four horses and their horsemen, the white horse and the red horse and the black horse and the pale horse will all bring very certain and definite events to the beginning portion of the tribulation. This is what I want us to look at here tonight. So as you can see, these four horsemen correspond with the first four seals being opened by Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 5, who is worthy to open the seals? And we found out that no man and no one was worthy to open the seals other than Jesus Christ. And so each of these seals are being opened, and it's very evident that these seals are bringing judgment upon the earth from God. And so we look at each of these four, and the first one that we see is the white horse in verse number 1 and 2. We see the white horse in verse number one and two, where it says once again, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now at first blush, you think here's a white horse Here's someone riding on the horse. If you're just reading this without maybe giving it a lot of thought at first, or you're just reading it and maybe making some connections with other things you have read in the Bible, when you see white horse and a rider on the white horse, it may very well be the first thing that you think is Jesus Christ. And that's certainly understandable in a way. Isn't he at that great and final battle going to come riding on a white horse? Isn't he going to uh, on that day come uh, with uh, conquering over the nations of the world? Certainly, you could make a connection and say, well, I wonder if this white horse and the rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 11, which I just referenced says, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. But I would submit to you tonight that who we just read about was actually not Christ at all, but actually who we would call Antichrist. It is not Christ at all, but actually called Antichrist. It's very important that we identify the character of this person correctly, because if we misidentify who this is, this could really uh, misshape how we look at the entire seven-year period of the tribulation. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that the Antichrist would look a lot like Christ. Do you know why? Because Satan is the master copycat. He's an imitator. He's a deceiver. He, could we put it this way? He's a cheap imitation of the real thing. Uh, Satan is always trying to take what God does and imitate it, but yet he can never do it to the quality of what God does, and he never is of the quality of who God is. Here's an example. Do you remember when Moses took his rod and threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and all of Pharaoh's Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh, well, Pharaoh's Egyptians would have been Egyptians, Pharaoh's magicians who were Egyptians, uh, they all threw their staves on the ground and they made serpents too. But what happened? Moses' rod that was a serpent ate the other serpents right up. Why? Because they could make an imitation, but they couldn't do the real thing. They could even make little bits of water turn into blood. But what they found out was uh, they couldn't heal the whole bodies of water that were blood back into water. Why? Because Satan is a master copycat. He loves to take what God does and make it look like it is something like God. But yet, of course, he cannot imitate God because, well, here's a newsflash. He's not God. 
And so he's not able to do those things. So it should not surprise us that he knows the character of God and says, you know what? I'm going to come in on a white horse. Now, what evidence would suggest to me that this is the Antichrist and not Jesus Christ? There's several different things. The first, this rider, it's said in verse number two, has one crown. Now, crowns would represent authority because a king would have a crown. And so the Antichrist will have some level of authority, great authority during the tribulational period. But yet when we see Jesus in Revelation chapter number 19, he doesn't just have one crown, he has many crowns. In fact, what will we sing? Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. He doesn't just have great authority. We could put it this way, he has all authority. But what authority does not Jesus have? What authority does Jesus lack? No, he has all authority given to him by the Father. And so we can see there, there's a connection, but yet it's Antichrist trying to copy the Christ. It says in verse number two that the rider has a bow. But interestingly enough, it doesn't mention that the bow has arrows. I don't know much about archery. If you remember from Sunday morning, I really don't know a lot about archery because I was at the, the range and I started pointing it at other people uh, that were, uh, well, you know, you, you shouldn't do that, okay? Uh, you know, if you're going to point it, point it right at the target and that's it. Well, it's also seven or eight years old, so that probably had something to do with it. But I don't know a lot about archery, but I do know this. If you've got a bow, you've got to have arrows. But it's not mentioned here that he has arrows, which tells me and suggests to me that the world will submit to the Antichrist could we put it this way, without him having to fire a shot? That he's not going to have to come and, and do uh, with great force to take the power of the world stage. It's literally going to be handed to him. Why? We already talked about this. There'll be mass chaos. People will have disappeared. Everything's going to be in great flux in this world. And there's going to be one unifying leader who's going to say this, trust me, give me your allegiance uh, give me your nations, give me your everything, come under my umbrella, and I will protect you. And we'll see uh, that that will be the Antichrist posture. In fact, Daniel chapter 8, verse number 25 talks about it when it says this, and by peace shall destroy many. Think about that. By peace shall destroy many. He will come in peace, but that peace will be quite destructive, even as we'll see here in just a little bit. Uh, in fact, another example is this rider comes forth conquering and to conquer. But while Jesus will do battle at Armageddon, Jesus does not return to conquer. Jesus comes back to bring peace. You look in the book of Isaiah, some of us are reading the book of Isaiah now here in this church, and we're just kind of going through some talk to, uh, to people about it. And uh, you see the times when the lion will sleep with the lamb and all of those type of things. Well, that's what Jesus will bring. He'll bring real peace. You look at that seven-year period of tribulation, <laughs> peace is not to be found. There'll be the illusion of peace. There might be, could we put it this way, a veneer of peace where it just kind of looks like there is peace, but you scratch a little bit under the surface and you realize there's no peace here at all. This is no doubt in my mind, none other than Antichrist. Further, one commentator said this, the whole context and character of these seals absolutely forbid our thinking of this rider being the Lord Jesus, as so many affirm. His reign shall not bring war, famine, and strife in its train. His appearance will bring peace, but we're going to see these other three riders aren't coming with peace. 
It's coming with problem after problem after problem, and that's not the character of Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt that this is he that is spoken of in Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Antichrist. And this is important to differentiate between Antichrist and Christ because, as another commentator put it, here we reach an interpretive crossroads in the book of Revelation. You can tell much about how a person understands this book and God's prophetic plan by seeing how they understand the first writer. Those who think Revelation is mostly a book of history believe that this writer is Jesus, the apostles, or even the Roman emperors. Those who believe that it's prophetic, yet to be fulfilled, often account this writer to be the Antichrist. And I think that's very clear from the context of which we see and that which is to follow ahead, including number two, which is this, not just the white horse, but the red horse. Number two is the red horse. Well, the white horse was a horse of conquest. The next horse is a horse of war. Now, while there was conquest, it was a peaceful conquest. Again, that may sound like a contradiction, but I don't believe it is. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, a little bit of an allusion to what we see here when it says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety... Isn't that what will happen when the Antichrist, the white horse, comes and takes over? He's promising peace and safety. When they promise peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Warfare. Our world is in a constant state of warfare. You know, we don't often hear a lot about conflicts all around the world. The Bible, the uh, the news media, not the Bible. The news media often highlights what they want to highlight for us to see. But there are conflicts all over the world. In fact, I just looked this up today, and I'm not saying that this map is necessarily an authoritative list. But you will find that there are conflicts of different types and different natures all over this world today. There's all types of conflicts being taken place. Many of these are conflicts within a year that a thousand or more people die all over the world. Now you look at this and think, oh, I don't know that I hear a lot about this on the television, or I don't know that I hear about this a lot on the internet, and certainly we don't. But in many ways, the world is on fire today. But can you imagine a time during the end times when there is warfare unlike anything this world has seen? Uh, warfare that makes World War I or World War II uh, look like child's play. And I'm not trying to downplay either of those wars or any other war. Please understand what I'm saying tonight. But I'm, what I'm saying is the world will not have seen open warfare like it will see when this red horse is on uh, the on the move. Uh, during this time, peace will be removed, people will kill one another, and the rider on the red horse will have a great sword by his side. Look at what it says in verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. So there is going to be 
some level of peace. Remember, the peace treaty is going to be signed. The Antichrist is going to have everyone coalesce around him. It will be a bloodless coup, if you will, where he takes over everything. But then that veneer will be quickly removed and there will be warfare. And it says, and they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. This great sword is a picture just like the great or the crown would have been a picture of authority. The great sword, we know what that is. That's the picture of warfare that will take place. Some believe that this uh, is going to be a conflict foretold in Ezekiel chapter number 38 and 39. Now, we're not going to go there and look at that right now. You can look at it later. And if you ever heard of the terms Gog and Magog before, uh, then you'll be familiar with the connection that takes place here. Uh, it says uh, in those chapters that there will be a sneak attack on Israel at a time when there seems to be great peace. I don't know about you, but that just kind of seems to fit in what we have here. Another key for me that this would take place early on in the tribulation period is Ezekiel 39 verse 9. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. So there's a coalition. If you read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, it's a coalition from the north uh, that will come and that will, uh, in a time of peace, attack Israel. Israel will win supernaturally this great battle, and it's going to take seven years to be able to clean up after this battle. Well, that suggests to me that this is not something that's happened yet. It seems to be something that would take place early on and make a great connection with the red horse. And seven years tells us this. It would probably take place very early on in the tribulation. Something that would happen very early on uh, during that time. Now, this may be the case and it may not be the case. We're trying to make connections here from Old Testament to New Testament. But this is what I can rest upon this evening, that this red horse is very clearly a time of war that follows a time of of the illusion of peace. At a time when it seems like everything's going to be peaceful, there will not be peace when that red horse and his rider comes. Which gives us the third uh, of these horses and riders, and that's the black horse. That is the black horse. And this speaks of famine and scarcity. Look again in verse number six. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So we see three different uh, issues here. We see the issue of the wheat. We see the issue with the barley. And then the issue with the oil and the wine. So interpreting this doesn't have to be difficult. Jesus has talked about in the Gospels a penny and the equivalency of the penny with a day's wage. And so we don't think of a penny as a day's wage today. You know, uh, Brother Vince came in and handed me a dime. By the way, very nice of you. I didn't look at that and say, wow, 10 days wages. Um, but understand that when we're reading the Bible, if we're looking at a penny, we're basically looking at a day's wage. So what do we see? This black horse has come, and this is a time of economic upheaval. This is a time of famine. This is a time of great difficulty. How do we know that? Because it will take to buy a measure of wheat a day's wage. It will take to buy a measure of barley, uh, three measures of barley, a day's wage. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, historically and even biblically in a lot of ways, wheat was looked at as more of a luxurious grain. It was a grain that would cost more. Uh, barley was more of a grain of a commoner. It was usually cheaper to be able to get on the market. So if you wanted to get a day's wage of a measure 
of meal, it would have to be wheat. If you wanted three measures, it would have to be barley. Uh, and you would struggle just to be able to put food on your table. And isn't that interesting? The government comes in and says, you can trust us. We'll take care of you. And what happens immediately? War and economic upheaval through famine. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But here's something that's very interesting. Here, here's the entities. Remember, the wheat, the barley, but then the oil and the wine. Now, wheat and barley make bread. These are basic staples that really every nation, every people group eat. They eat bread. Uh, but here's something about oil and wine. It's not a staple. It's a luxury good. Isn't it interesting that people would be struggling to be able to get the basic necessities, but there would be others who would have free access to luxurious goods. Now, you want to talk about economic inequality. Let's talk about during the end times. What's going to happen? The people that are in the right circles, the people who are in the know, the people who know the right people, they're going to be able to get whatever they need. And the common man, the regular people, the people like you and I would probably be called, what, what would they get? They're barely making it by. And again, we've seen this throughout history that the haves have and the have-nots do not. But this is going to be here on an even greater scale. So massive this scale will be. Why is this important in the end times issues? Why is this important? Because the people that are, I believe are in the sphere of the Antichrist are going to have all the resources. The people who are not in the sphere of the Antichrist will have no resources. So he's already put together this political coalition, what is he going to be able to do next? He'll be able to put together an economic coalition. It's almost as if they'll get to a point where you'll have to buy and sell through his economy with his mark. And if you don't have it, you don't buy and you don't sell. You say, Pastor, is that actually in the Bible? Oh, we're getting to that in like seven or eight years. We'll be there uh, and we'll talk about it. But the idea is this, is that he's going to consolidate all of that power within himself, economically speaking. The people that want uh, will not have. The people uh, that are in high places will have in abundance. Uh, and, and you say, well, why would people do that? Listen, if you're hungry, you'll sign away a lot of stuff. I'm going to go back to Egypt for just a second. Go back a few hundred years, not to the time of Moses, but to the time of Joseph. Do you remember what happened during the Great Famine? That for seven years, Joseph made sure that they stored up all the grain that was there. And then there was seven years of famine. And during that famine, the, the people of Egypt came to Joseph and said, we have no bread. And he said this, sign over your land and Pharaoh will take your land. And they said, well, what does our land matter to us if we're going to die? Take the land and give us some grain. Now imagine that on a global scale where people say, only the Antichrist has real access to the economy. Only the Antichrist has real access to the needs that we have on a daily basis. And that consolidation will continue with this black horse where this let them eat cake society where they don't care about the common man, but all they care about is putting the masses together uh, for their own uses and their own methods. And the Antichrist will do that. Uh, and I believe the black horse is all part of that. But then we see not just the white horse and the red horse and the black horse, but we also see a pale horse, a pale horse. Now you say pale, that's not really a color. And, and no, it's not a color. But I would say that 
the pale horse would be the color of a corpse. That in many ways you could look at the pale horse as a corpse-like color where the color is literally drained. And if you've ever seen a corpse before where the, literally the color is drained right out, that's why a funeral home will ne literally need to put on makeup and do all kinds of different things to be able to enliven, so to speak, a body or put warm lights above a corpse to be able to make it look uh, in a way that's not pale, that's not uh, unseemly. But this pale horse comes, and what comes? Death. How much? A lot. Look at verse number eight, if you will, and it says, And I looked, and I behold a pale horse. This is the fourth seal being opened. And his name that sat on him was death. I mean, do we really need to know much more than that? That on this horse was the rider that had the power of death, and hell followed with him. What does this tell us? Not only was this death, but this was death of those who went straight to hell. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now, look at this very carefully with me. A fourth part of the earth, our world is rapidly coming to the place of reaching 8 billion souls. That, that's the number that we're getting to. I seem to remember not that long ago, we were somewhere around 6 billion people. And all of a sudden, within, what, 20 years or so, uh, we're now at the 8 billion number or somewhere very close to that. Uh, we're talking about if this was to happen now, and we understand there's not necessarily a connection. We don't know that this is going to happen. We don't know that Jesus Christ is going to rapture the saints out today. But just as a matter of example, you're talking about the death of 2 billion people. 2 billion people. That's an absolute insane number. And this is not just people. This is those who do not know Jesus Christ, their Savior, because it says not just that death, but that hell uh, would follow after. How were they to die? Well, they would die several different ways. And really, a lot of them have to do with what we've just seen with these other horses. They would be killed with the sword. Well, that speaks to war and also the red horse. With hunger, that speaks to uh, that economic inequality and the famine which deals with the black horse and with death and with the beasts of the earth. It seems to me, now listen, this may seem odd to you, but I just want to look at the word of God for what it is. I, I believe that this even talks about nature itself rebelling against mankind where beasts that maybe would normally be tame or maybe animals that would normally be uh, uh, that wouldn't rove out of areas where they would, they would stay away from people, where now people could literally be mauled and attacked by animals and dying in these massive attacks. Say, Pastor, that doesn't make a lick of sense. We can only go by what we see here. What we see about what makes sense doesn't matter. It, we throw that out the window. We just have to go by what the Word of God says. And why else would God say, killed with the beasts of the earth, where we would look at an attack from an animal today as something very rare, where during that time it could be something that's very common. Now, why would that be? It could be because of a rapid depopulation of the earth, where now animals are starting to roam. They're starting to scavenge. Who knows? Do we need to know the reason? We don't need to necessarily know the reason. We can make conjecture, but all we see here in the Word of God is this is what happens, and this pale horse comes, and two billion possibly 
people die. It could be more. It could be less. We don't know. We certainly know there will be people who will be raptured out before, so that number would go down. I don't know how many that would be. But here's what I know. It's going to be massive upheaval. Massive upheaval is going to take place. And perhaps the most incredible thing is this is just the beginning of sorrows. Perhaps the most incredible thing is that even greater judgment will come as the Antichrist and much of the world dig in their heels. And what will the Antichrist do during this time? He'll do two things. First of all, he'll continue to consolidate his power. He'll continue to take power. There's going to be other kingdoms. The Bible talks about 10 horns, but then one horn that's greater than all. But he's going to consolidate all of the power of these world kingdoms as he continues to promise that he is the only one that can control things, even as he's rapidly losing control. You say, who would believe something like that? I mean, you looked around lately? I mean, I don't think it would be very hard to imagine that in a time of great destruction and great fear that the world would literally hand over uh, power to someone who's promising peace they can't even deliver, but yet they'll willingly hand it over. It doesn't seem that unlikely to me. In fact, the more I live on this earth, the more likely it seems to happen. But again, it doesn't matter what we think about it. It only matters what the word of God says. So we see that, but he's not only going to consolidate power, but he's going to cast blame. He's going to cast blame. Who's he going to blame? I believe that he will blame God Almighty and he will blame believers for what takes place. Why? The believers will be the scapegoats. There's going to be two messengers that will come, two witnesses, and the world will hate them because they'll speak of Jesus Christ. There'll be 144,000 Jewish witnesses that will speak of Jesus Christ. The world will hate them as well. And there will come a time that the judgment on the world will be so great that men and women will be gnashing their teeth. And as they're doing so, they are literally cursing God himself. They're literally cursing God himself. Why would they do that? Because the Antichrist has shown them that he's, that Christ is the enemy, even though the Antichrist is the enemy. You say, Pastor, how could people believe something like this? How could people fall into such a trap? And my answer would be this. What I just said a few moments ago, have you looked at the world today? The world stage has pieces that are being put into place right around us. Remember, there's no prerequisite. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come back. But yet we're also foolish to say, we're also foolish if we don't admit that things are moving into place. The things that people talked about with the mark of the beast 50 years ago, we look at today and we think, well, that's child's play. People thought, pay with something with your... Your, your, a mark on your head or on your, on your hand. I mean, how could that possibly be? And we look at that and say, well, a lot of people do that now. Beep. It'd be nothing to implant something within. We've already seen evidence that there are people that, that do that, want to do that, and even on small scale are doing that. You say, well, pastor, all these things have to happen before the Antichrist comes. No, no, no. I mean, these are just what I would call just warning signs that things are coming that things are happening. But what's going to happen? The Antichrist will use all of these things and he will blame God Almighty for it. But why is God doing this? Sure, he's bringing judgment upon the world, but he's also giving the world one last chance to repent. He's bringing judgment upon the world, but he's giving the world one last chance to repent. Why? Because God had to do incredible things to show the Egyptians 
that Pharaoh, who proclaimed himself to be God, was not God. Did he not? Ten plagues. And each of those plagues, by the way, if you go back, was God proving that one of the lower Egyptian gods, and again, little g gods, was not actually God. You know, showing the God of the water was not protecting the water. The God of the frogs was not actually the God. You can go through those. We don't have time to do that, but you go through and you could find that to be the case. Now a man comes up to the whole world and says, I am Christ. I am your Messiah. Now he's not going to say it outright at first. It's going to take him about three and a half years before he becomes the abomination of desolation and places himself at the temple. But certainly he's going to present himself that way. So what's God going to have to do? He's going to have to bring even greater things to show the world he is not who he says he is. He is not who he says he is. So what do we take with this tonight for ourselves? It really comes down to some verses that we haven't looked at, but are the most prevalent in this text. Look at verse number one. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Look at verse number three. The last uh, words there are, come and see. Look at verse uh, number five, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. Look at the last three words of verse number seven, come and see. When I was studying this out, uh, even again just today, been studying ahead in Revelation, but then going back and putting everything together uh, for messages, what jumped out to me today was that phrase that kept coming up, come and see, come and see. Come and see. And I want to think about that for just a moment. Consider this. You ever had something really good happen and then something really bad happen within minutes or days? And that really bad thing maybe seemed even worse because something really good had just happened before? Imagine this. I don't know if I've ever thought about it this way before. John, the revelator in John chapter 4 and 5, the apostle John saw the greatest scene that anyone had ever seen in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. He saw the very throne room of God. He saw hundreds of millions of angels. He saw the four and twenty elders. He saw the lamb who was slain, uh, who was worthy to open the seals. Chapters 4 and 5 in this direction represent the greatest thing that human eyes had ever laid eyes on before. I mean, we took weeks to cover it, and we realized that we only just scratched the surface. But John saw it all. But then, you want to talk about a brushback. He turns to chapter 6, and now with his eyes, he's told, come and see. Come and see. And he sees something unlike any human has ever seen before. But as magnificent as that was in chapters 4 and 5, was how horrific the scene he saw in chapter number six, and it's not even done yet. It's not even done yet. It's not even close. He said this, come and see. You know, John didn't likely want to see those awful things, but what was the angel saying? So much so he had to say it four times. Look here, look here, you need to see this. You need to see this. You know, when it comes to prophecy, we're gonna start getting deeper and deeper into prophecy. I don't, I don't wanna say we've covered surface topics up to this point, but let's be honest, chapters one through five 
represent the easier portions of Revelation to go through in the sense that you're talking about things of the past in chapter number one, the letters of the seven churches in chapters two and three, and then the throne room of God in chapter four and five. But we're going to start getting into some pretty deep stuff. And I'll be honest with you, the temptation for some may be this to disengage. The temptation for some may be even to say this, is this really that important? Is it even worth me looking at? Is it even, for some, it might even cause fear. For some, it might even cause the fact that you even think about this and it just makes you anxious, the end times, the thought of the end times. And even if you know that you'll be taken in the, the rapture, maybe you have worry about others who will be left behind. Uh, you have worries about when that time will be or will he come before I do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you may just get to the point where you think, I don't even know if I, I need to know anymore. I don't even know if I want to go anymore. And I will say there are some people that maybe focus too much on this because remember, uh, it, it's, this is not as much about counting days as, as, as much as it is making our days count. This is what this is about. It's not as much about counting the days, you know, figuring out, was it 1911 or was it 1927 or was it 2012 or when the Mayan calendar or was it 2027? And these are all dates that people name. No, it's not about counting days, about making our days count. But part of that is this, we got to come to this eyes wide open and it may get ugly and it will get ugly. It may get a little bit confusing and I would submit to you that even if you study this several times, there's room for us to learn and to grow and to understand. And it may come to the point where you say, no, I'll look at this later when I understand more about the Bible. But I would encourage you, listen to what John the Revelator's message was from that angel who looked at him and said this, look, you probably just want to keep your eye over here. I know you want to keep looking at the throne room of God, but I want you to just come and see what's going on over here. Don't ignore it. You need to know what's going on. And you and I will be gone when these things happen. Praise Jesus for that. Praise Jesus for that. But that does not absolve us from understanding and learning about these things. Because if John had to come and see them to be able to give them to us by the inspiration of God, then we ought to be able to come and see them too. And to study and to learn and to grow. And I'll say this, by the time you're done with this study, if you stick with it, you won't understand everything about the book of Revelation. I got bad news, you never will. But every time you go through it, you'll learn a little more. And you'll understand a little more. And believe it or not, you get to the point, as I have in my life, where I look at the book of Revelation, and even in its grotesqueness, and I try to use that word properly in the sense that I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to critique God in saying that, but it, it, you look at possibly two billion people dying. I mean, how do you even wrap your head around that? But even in that, I look at it and I, and I draw comfort in the sense that God in his providence is in control and we can trust his word. Come and see. It's going to get harder. It's going to get a little darker. But don't tune it out. Study it out and come and see. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.